City Bible Church. You should know I never sought to get on the radio. I never said, oh, let me get on the radio. One of you said, I have radio spot time. Would you like to do a radio spot, please? And then he bugged me about it. And then we did radio spots. But this was put in our lap and we're grateful for it. And he doesn't want me to tell you that Mark Tedesco put us on the radio. But... <laughs> no, thank you, Mark. <laughs> I get a text every once in a while. I need a spot. Oh, yeah, we were supposed to do that. Moms and dads, friends and neighbors, brothers and sisters, I hope in the Lord that you know the answer that I was asking little kids the question, why do we have to be good? I hope you know it's not to be saved. Oh, please know that your performance, your behavior, your goodness or badness isn't the question of whether you're saved. Jesus Christ alone is our savior. We don't keep ourselves saved. You didn't get saved by anything you've done as Titus will be told by the Apostle Paul in chapter three, it is entirely the grace of God toward you that you have eternal life through his son, that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. When the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs, those to inherit, according to the hope of eternal life. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and the assurance that he gives us through it, that you're not saved by your goodness and you're not condemned by your badness, but everyone is under judgment who hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten son of God, according to John chapter three, verse 18. Today, we're talking about Christian conduct and it is a conversation in the epistles of the church for the church. It is an in the family conversation. It is a, a time when we look at self and we self-assess and self-judge according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. It is not a time to ask whether you have the life. It's a time to ask whether you are living it. And that's always the case. That is the purpose of Titus's approach to the believers in Crete to tell them how they should live. And by way of review in chapter one, Paul tells them you're in for a tough ministry. So you need to get in there and set in order things that need to be set in order to contradict those that refute the word. And the way you'll do that is you'll, you'll designate or identify elders, overseers in every city on Crete. And these overseers need to be of a certain quality that they're exemplary in their conduct. But more importantly, they need to be of a certain philosophy of ministry that they're focused on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they have sound words in accordance with that teaching that they're committed to, that they're holding fast to in verse nine of chapter one, so that they can encourage those who are listening to be faithful and, that, and so that they can correct, rebuke those who speak against the sound words of the Lord. And then Paul tells us in first, or sorry, Titus 1, 10 through 16, that you are in for a hard ministry because there are some rock-headed Cretans. There are people in Crete that are particularly troublesome and you're going to have to sort that out. It sounds a lot like what Paul says to Timothy about going to Ephesus and correcting those who are teaching false doctrine. There's a problem of Judaizing, people adding something besides Christ and his work on the cross to salvation, like circumcision, like the work that, you know, should go with your salvation or you're not saved. In other words, adding works to the gospel of the grace of God. And, and Paul is going to shut that down and tell, and that's why chapter three, verses uh, four through seven, that big doctrinal, you know, declaration. That's one of our favorite things in all the Bible. You have to understand that he's going into difficult work. Let me apply that with you. If you want to represent Jesus Christ in the United States today to average rank and file people, you have to understand you're starting with people that know that you are not correct in what you're saying. They know, I believe Margaret Thatcher said it, so many things that aren't so. They know so much that isn't so. 
They know that we don't have a creator. They know that uh, every, in the beginning was nothing and then it exploded. They know that random processes have, um, what's the old word that they called it? Have um, random processes have produced uh, spontaneous generation of life. And that random co-locations of atoms are the only explanation for anything that exists, even though we've never seen anything like that produce anything like what we have. They know all these things and they're not true, but they know them and they're committed to them. And it's at an emotional level that you will be rejected for saying the one who made you loves you and sent his son to die for you. Who, by the way, carrying out the will wishes of the father made you. And, and you have to understand you're coming to a community of people in this culture that is not much different from what Paul sent Titus to deal with or Timothy or what Paul was facing. It was constant opposition. It was opposition because people all know so much better and they're emotionally committed to what they know. And the truth is that they've been deceived by God's enemy. And I hope you understand having talked to people enough and thought through and dealt with the way people are, hopefully you know where this fracture is. God is going to have to do a work in people's hearts for them to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to have to convict them according to 1 John chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is going to have to do his convicting work or there is no hope for any of these people, including us, if you've believed in Christ. He worked in you and we're looking for God to do that work and we're making ourselves available to do that work. But I just want you to understand as we come to the scriptures and talk about Christian conduct, part of the context is you're under pressure because you're dealing with people that don't want to know, they know you're wrong. And it makes you sometimes, if you get enough of them talking to you at once, wonder if they're right. One reason I don't like to debate is because I forget sometimes that logical processes in debates don't necessarily render true outcomes. And I want the game to be played like this. The one who wins the debate had the right pr proposition. Almost like the old medieval uh, trial by combat. Whoever dies in the combat was the, was the one that deserved to die. Whoever loses the debate was the one that was wrong. And the truth is that human reasoning is a, is a shadow representation of divine reasoning. Logic does come from God, but his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And so just because someone can out argue you or out reason you doesn't mean they have the truth better than you do. It means that they have a more sophisticated set of machinery that they've been working on for the comp competition. And I don't want to do sophisticated machinery. I want to put my finger in the Bible and trust in the God who has told me, here I am, I want you to know me. The Bible is a rebuke to our arrogance and our self-righteousness, but it is at the same time and for the same reason, God's love letter to us. He loves us with a love we could never imagine. We can't begin to fathom. And one way you know that is he's revealed himself to you. He's shown you who you are. He's shown you who he is. And he said, here's what I'm going to do with you forever. So as we turn to Titus chapter two today, with that introduction of the hardship of the gospel, and the conduct of the elders as they have their ministry philosophy of focus on the word for the correction of those who contradict and the encouragement of those with what we call positive volition. We move to Titus 2 and we look at how the whole household is supposed to be. The conduct of the entire household. Sude lale ha prepe te hugiai nuse didaskalia. That is a rough way of saying, but you speak what is proper, what things are proper or fitting for healthy or sound teaching. We get the word hygiene from this word, hugiai nuse or nuso, hugiaino. And uh, this is where you get the word hygiene and there's a noun or an adjective connected to it. Um, this is the adjective form. This is healthy, this is sound. It is healthy for you to brush your teeth and take care of the other matters of necessary physical hygiene, right? Change your socks, wash your feet, dry them out, and then change your socks. These kinds of things, this makes you healthy, especially if you have a long way to go on foot. So this is what Paul is saying. You need to be speaking what makes for soundness, health among the God's people. But you, Titus, a rare uh, vocative in Paul's use, but you speak 
What kind of word is speak? I didn't put it in red, but you can see it right there. He is commanding Titus to speak, laleo, to say. With his mouth, an onomatopoetic word that laleo, that's a word that sounds like what it is, la, 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 la. And there he was just going off with the mouth, la, 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 la. That's what laleo means to speak. You speak, he says, what is, what things? Those things, I've translated the relative pronoun, those things that are prepe, where we get, I contend, the word proper, but fitting, appropriate. You communicate those things that are fitting, that are appropriate for healthy didascalia doctrine. Now, the doctrine is Jesus died for our sins and risen from the dead. The doctrine is your eternal destiny in him and therefore what you have in this life. Now, the doctrine is what we've had from Paul throughout the entire Christian life of Paul. So what are the things? What are the things that are fitting for sound teaching? If you do, you, you could get this from reading Titus five or six times. I mean, 15 minutes of your day, three chapters. Just read through Titus and ask the question, what is Paul talking about throughout this letter? I'll give you a hint. He gave us the virtue list of the elder, the overseer. Here's how these guys need to function. He said, this is their philosophy of ministry and there are those that contradict. And now we're gonna hear how everybody's supposed to behave. Be a good boy and be a good girl. Why? Because your conduct, these things, the way you live, these things, that's what he's talking about, your conduct. Your conduct needs to be fitting for sound teaching. It needs to be appropriate to what you've been taught. So if you've been taught, then you need to live like you've been taught. If you've been taught, young people, that it's best to fill up your tank with gas before it runs out of gas, then you need to conduct yourself in such a way that when your gas tank is approaching empty, what you do, now listen, this is really important, life skills 101, what you do is you fill it up. But I've only got, you know, I don't have much time, so I'm just going to get $5. Okay, but you're going to have to fill it up in, uh, soon. And you need to fill it up. That's because you've been taught. You've been taught by dad or whoever, by Mark, that if, you, if you're close to empty, fill up the tank. I'm going to quit calling you out, Mark. Somewhere between three and 5,000 miles, your car needs fresh oil. Generally speaking, now I know this is getting personal to me. <laughs> Not if it leaks, then more. Yeah, right. If I know that the car is going to run well and the engine will last long if I keep changing the oil regularly and I'm meticulous about it, if I've been taught that, then I need to live in such a way that I change the oil in the car because I've been taught. The things of Titus 2 and 3 are your conduct in accordance with what you've been taught. Beloved, Titus is showing you the philosophy. Paul's letter to Titus is showing you the idea that being a good person is not the Christian life. Sound teaching on Christ and who Christ is gives you the, the power in the spirit of God and the motivation to live out Christ, to have your conduct commensurate with the character of your Savior. And that's the Christian life. It's the, it's the content of God's word lived out. It's not behavioral therapy. It's not do these things and then you'll be a good Christian. Unless it's do these things, talk to God and spend time in his word with him talking to you. Do these things. And then having meditated on who he is according to his word and receiving that sound teaching, carry it out. Be you doers of the word. In other words, the Christian life is an entire baseball swing. It isn't a half swing where you just study the word and come to know the teaching. And it isn't a follow through swing where you start in the middle and you swing the bat around in the follow through stroke where you're serving or doing the work. It's the whole thing. You take in the word and you live it out. Now that my friends is rare. It is not generally done in the Christian world. What? The word is not the basis for the performance and a lot of the performance that you see, a lot of the works that are done, it's not through and because of the word and its power. It's because this is what we do. It's cultural pressure. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a group we get together and serve. I was once told by a misguided saint, I doubt not his salvation, 
but I don't think he understands the basis for his, that this church attracts teachers. Our church attracts workers. It's interesting how God works that way that, you know, your church is big on teaching, but we, we go out and serve. Well, that's just hell on earth to me. Because the works that are dead works that are done apart from the work of God in you through the word are worthless. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. So all that, all that energy and effort wasted in God's economy, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. We're seeking the wealth that is in heaven because we're working the works of God with him working through us. But I believe, beloved, that it's proper, it's fitting for sound teaching. It's because it is in accord with what God's word has given us. What am I saying? Am I saying if you're not spiritually mature, don't get to work? No. I'm saying get in the word as your priority and seek by God's grace to live it out in how you live. But don't start with, well, okay, how am I doing? What am I doing? Don't start with secular-minded behavioral therapy, behavioral psychology. That's not the way this works. We're not after behaviors. We're after the heart because the heart is the source that the behaviors flow from. So, so this is the point. Make a whole bat swing. Do the whole work. Take in the word and then live it out. Well, I just I don't have a lot of time, so I got to pick one. Start with the word. You don't know what your day holds. You don't know how God is going to set up opportunities for you to swing the bat. So take time for the word. Grow more to receive and understand the riches of divine grace, grow, grow more with respect to your salvation so that you're more mature and more capable of helping. There's plenty of work, understand, beloved. There is so much work to do. We've got the 20 somethings in the church. Started a thing while I was out of town, we call it the work. Why do you call it? It's a dinner thing. We get together. It's like, it's like a youth group, but it's not. It's more like adults getting together to talk about the Bible and enjoy some, something usually smoked off the, off the, the, the smoker. Some, some good food, that's, that's a key ingredient to the, the work is there's good food. Then we get together, they're all north end and south end. I mean, yeah, we do. We get together, we talk, we get to know each other and we talk about what is the work that God has for us to do and how can we work together in the work? And we did the little Christmas project, right? Why do we call it the work? Not because it's the works that, you know, get everything on your hamburger, get me the works. That's not what it is, it's the work. The work that God prepared for us in advance that we would walk in. That's what we're talking about. What work is it? It's representing Christ together. And it takes coordination and effort if you're going to work together in it. But whether you do it as a group or you do it individually, it's your life. And it requires spiritual food. And that's why he says that it's fitting for sound teaching. Paul is saying you need to, to speak this thing. I'm going to talk about this conduct stuff that goes along with the sound didache, the teaching that I've given you. Do you know moral people that don't know Jesus? Of course you do. Do you know people that seem very upbeat and, and fun to be around? You don't see a lot of vices in them, but there is no Christ. Yes, we know people like this. What do you do with that? You don't say, well, they must be believers from another flock. No, you say that I'm not here to judge people by how their personality fits or what sins I do or do not see in them conducting. I'm here to represent Jesus Christ who died for every one of us, broken, nasty, dirty, rotten sinners. And just because you can't see the feet of clay on someone that needs Christ doesn't mean they don't need him. Thankfully, fruit inspection is God's and we'll let him do it. But you and I need to be about his work. And so that's why he says, speak the conduct stuff that's fitting for the sound doctrine that you already have. And what conduct are we talking about? He says elders. And this time he doesn't say elders like the overseers in chapter one or in first Timothy three. This is interesting. The word presbyteros, the word for an elder that's by office, the presbyteros is an adjective used as a noun. It'd be like the word elder. Elder is an adjective, but we've turned it into a noun, the elder man. We could also use the word old. Let's break it out of our Christianese and just use English, old. Hey, all the olds need to get together and live like this. We don't say it that way, but that's the, that's the Greek, is it's an adjective being used as a noun, presbyteros, the olds. And we understand it means the older men who are older in the faith that are the 
pastors designated to carry on the ministry and shepherd the flock of God. That's the olds, the elders. This word is presbutes. It's related, but it's a noun and it means older men. And so there's a difference between elders and elders. There's a difference between the, the, the people of the office of elder and older men. And so now having already addressed the overseers who are the elders in that sense, he's now going to talk about all of us, the entire family. How are the older men to conduct themselves? They are to be what? Sober. Sober in Greek can mean with respect to drink, but it's broader than that. And the drinking shows you something. See, with drinking, there's a lack of inhibition and a lack of self-control. And there's a given over to our sinful lusts within the inhibition of, uh, of, of too much alcohol, the, the drunkenness of um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. This word sober, though, doesn't just refer to not being drunk. It does mean that, but it also means balanced. It means alert. It means attentive. It means on mission in the sense of whatever, whatever your task is, men, we have to, we have responsibilities we have to fulfill. And there's nothing better to call a man out and being a man than saying, you have something you need to do. A man does what he needs to do, right? And there's a lot, there's a reason why John Wayne had an appeal in American history. There's a reason why popular culture, a lot of it went that way in, in earlier generations, because we all know deep down inside men, that if you tell me I have duty, it's very satisfying. It's very gratifying to know I'm doing it. Be sober, be serious in the sense of responsible. Dignified is a related word, simnos. Dignified, somebody that is fitting their station as the elder man. See, dad says the blessing at dinner, not all the time, but he's trained you by example to be the elder man who's representing the Lord. And you're all looking at him. By the way, Titus 2.1 only talks about the older men in this one verse. This is the only place the men are mentioned. Older women are going to get several verses along with younger women. And there's a little bit for the, for the men, but the older men only get this. This is the way you're supposed to be dignified. Why? Because you're the figurehead or you're the hood ornament. You're the grill on the car. You're the first thing we see. You're the thing we're looking at and you need to be charting the course by your example. So dignified. Sound-minded, this is the word that will be the theme word throughout all of the descriptions of how we live because of sound teaching. Sophronos. Sophronos is two words thrown together. So means good or healthy. And phroneo is to think. And so this is, a, this is a cognitive word. This is about somebody that's sensible, that has their head on their shoulders. It doesn't mean that you don't appreciate the romantic side of life or the idealistic side of life, or poetry, or beauty, or that you don't have an artist's soul. It doesn't mean that. It means that despite all the great things that we appreciate in the beauty part of life, you think, and you can think, and our thoughts as Christians, with our sensibility, our thoughts are constantly directed back to the throne of God, with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Christian sensibility is based on what God has told me, I'm expecting it to be so. And I'm living my life on those terms. Sound-minded, healthy. There's our um, word, hugiaino again. Healthy, sound in the sense of health, in faith, in love, and endurance. The health the person has, it's a general summary, is they're healthy in their faith. It's a strong, healthy faith, not a, not a weak, moldering away faith, but a strong, vibrant faith. Now, men, if this is grandpa and, and great grandpa, if that's who's being described here, then you're being told despite inevitable challenges to your health, that your faith needs to be robust. You need to find the Caleb Christianity in you, where at the end of life, the biggest challenges come and they need the strongest walk with the Lord. Healthy in faith, healthy in love, healthy in endurance spiritually. I'm not saying that you're not under great challenge from your body, and all the challenges that come in, in, in the last stages of life, of course you're facing that. I'm saying that all the time that you spent in the word to date has made you the, the strong believer that can weather that. And we look on and see your suffering and say, I wanna go that way when it's my turn. I want to trust in the Lord through this. I wanna sing his praises. 
I want to say I'm ready to go home when he's ready to take me. I want to say that this life is, is not, this is not my home. This tent is a temporary dwelling and I have an eternal uh, dwelling that's coming. We need to be able to see that in you and your strong faith and your strong love and your endurance. Have you ever had an experience where you saw uh, your elderly saintly heroes uh, show a little bit of, uh, of the behind the scenes and you were kind of surprised? You ever seen that? I'll tell you, it's very shocking when you see people that at church, of course, not this church, I won't get too personal, but you see people at church that are wonderful, loving couple, married for generations, for a couple, you know, six or seven decades or five or six decades, just wonderful, loving people just love the Lord and love to be there, you know, Sunday morning folk. And then you go spend time with them on an extended basis and you see, oh, these are real humans with real sinful tendencies. You ever seen a lady that you would never have thought could melt butter in her mouth say horrible cutting things to her husband of 50 years? Have you ever seen it? Not as much as you've seen him be impatient and nasty to her. She just takes it. And you're like, oh, what kind of puppet show are y'all putting on on Sunday morning? But that a lot of times that's what's going on. You get long-term patterns of wickedness toward one another and you let your guard down and start saying what you think or how you feel. And it's just your sin nature. Of course, none of these patterns are true here at Preston City Bible Church. I'm certainly convinced Sunday morning people. What happened? How does such a thing happen where we've been walking with the Lord and love the Lord, love the Lord, love the Lord all our lives. And then here with the person we should care for the most, we're, we're roughest on that person. We're nasty to that person. How did that happen? You're not in the word. You're not walking according to the spirit. How do I know that such a thing, when such a man is nasty to his wife, how do I know that he cannot be walking by the spirit in that moment? Because the apostle Paul said it, and I read it in Greek and I had Greek scholars help me learn how to read it that in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not be able, it will be absolutely impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I know that when you're nasty in your communication to your wife, gentlemen, that there is no way in that moment you're walking by the Spirit because you're carrying out the lust of the flesh. It's one or the other. And there's a, there's a war going on inside and the Spirit is opposed to the flesh and the flesh to the Spirit. What am I saying? I'm saying that sound teaching in you should carry forth in this kind of character, gentlemen. And so do the self-assessment. I told you it's going to be a hard day. Look at yourself, say, yep, I need to make some adjustments. Or look at yourself and say, I better take care thinking I stand. I'm doing pretty good lest I fall. And see that you are the pattern that we're supposed to be following. You're the elder man who's not supposed to be full of yourself. You're supposed to be full of the spirit and full of the word of Christ richly dwelling within you so that you can be this person, that you have no, no business being in your own flesh. All right, pressure's off the gentleman. Let's move to verse three. Talk about the presbutidas. Presbutidas, isn't that a pretty word, presbutida? Of course, it means the older ladies, elder women. Hoseautos, in the same way, in their behavior, in behavior, remember, Verse one, you speak things fitting for sound doctrine. What things? The way we live, our conduct. And here's another example in behavior. Older women, this is the way you're supposed to be. Now watch, just like the older men, your figureheads, your exemplars, we're all looking at you. You know, in Andy Griffith, the Andy Griffith show, have you ever seen it? Homeschoolers will show their kids Andy Griffith because there's almost nothing in there that we have to correct. Um, except don't be a clown on the job or something, but... But Aunt B, I'm sorry, they're in North Carolina. They say Aunt B. Aunt B is the, more, is the moral core of the show. She's the householder. She's the, the grandma but she, or the aunt. But she's the lady that is the exemplar. And some of the best plots in this silly sitcom from the 60s, 50s and 60s, some of the best plots are when she's off, when she is getting it wrong. And she does because she's a human. But see, it's, it's a shock to us because she's supposed to get it right. She's grandma. And grandma's always taking care of business. She's always got the house just right. She's working hard. 
and she's holding the boy to account and, and all the things she needs to be doing. So this is the description. The same way in their behavior, reverent. Reverent, that means you fear the Lord. Not devils. I've translated, or yeah, translated diabolos. Y'all know this, one of my favorite verses. Diabolos. Do y'all know what a diabolos is? It's the word for devil, and it's used of Satan, the devil. That's the English butchering of this word diabolos. The, the Spanish has diablo, el diablo. It means devil. Now, it translated malicious gossips, and I'll say malicious accusers. That's closer to what diabolos means. This is, this is people with a problem with their mouth. Ladies, elder ladies, you're supposed to grow spiritually so that this isn't who you are. Do you struggle with this? Everybody does. But it's a great check on our character. Am I running my mouth when I shouldn't? Well, stop it. Or don't do it when the temptation arises. Not enslaved to much wine. Listen to the language. Not enslaved. That's the language. Not enslaved from doulos, the word for slave. Not having already been enslaved to wine. You can't have a bunch of lushes running around in your church. I'm sorry, is that too, too graphic? You can't. Because it's, it's a denial of the sound teaching that we've committed ourselves to. It's a denial of our Savior. Because we're enslaved to Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in Titus 1.1. I'm a slave of Christ, so I'm not enslaved to wine. And that's the idea. And so does this just go to wine? No, it goes to addiction. Not enslaved. A teacher of that which is good. Now, your Bible says teaching that which is good and opens the door to all the confusion about women and teaching in the church. But actually, this language is a noun. It's a teacher of the good. Now, what do teachers do? They teach. But a teacher of the good, kylo didoskalos, a teacher of the good is, is the description. So she is described as reverent, not malicious accuser, not enslaved to wine, but rather a teacher of the good. And then we have the teaching that they're to conduct. Now, this teaching is not being done generally in the body of Christ for two reasons, arrogance and arrogance. Let me see if you can uh, guess why as we go forward. In order that they may sound mind, literally, sophronizo, to cause to be of sound mind, give some sense to, to help, help a young woman have a sound mind. That's what it means, literally. You could say to teach them to be sound mind, teach them to be, but it, the word is to sound mind them. To sound mind the younger women, to be lovers of husbands, lovers of children, sound minded. There it is, sophronizo again. Sound minded, pure, homemakers or busy at home, good or kind, subordinate to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be spoken against. Let me back it up. Elder women, you have to be these things, including a teacher of the good, so that you can sound mind the younger women. Now, why did I say there are two reasons this isn't happening in the body of Christ? What are the two reasons? Arrogance and arrogance. Arrogance, number one, the teacher. What's wrong with our elder women where they cannot bring themselves to do this? How is this true? They don't think they're responsible to because they haven't fully processed this or they did and they looked in the word and saw what they were and then walked away and forgot. Arrogance says, I don't have to do what God's word says. I'm too busy. I have my own uh, daughters to worry about. Can't worry about these other young women in the church. Whatever the reason is, there is a conviction here for anybody that doesn't take this load on and as much as you're able to. Arrogance one is I don't have to obey God's word. Older women, not only are you exemplars to all of us, you are to sound mind the younger women to be women. How do I know this isn't generally done? Because of the feminist movement in America and its encroachment into the body of Christ. The feminist movement is a godless satanic lie to you. And it is this lie. You need to be what a man is or you can't be what you should be. And I'm not talking about the specifics of whether you work at home or you have a job or what you get paid. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the impulse, the motivation, the lie behind it, that there is happiness and joy out working in the thorns and thistles. That's not where the joy is. The joy is in your savior, Jesus Christ, and the work he has for you, which will have eternal value. And Satan is desperately hell bent, literally, on 
helping you avoid receiving those eternal rewards for this service. The feminist movement is the lie that there is joy somewhere besides your so great salvation. It is the lie that you need to be interchangeable with men instead of embracing what God says you are. Now notice what Paul says to these, what Paul says the older women are supposed to help the younger women be. They're supposed to be lovers of husbands, philoandros, philandros. That's this word to love your husband where we get the word philanderer. That means a totally different thing. Uh, back to 90s politics and stuff, a philanderer. Um, that, that's a man that, that is, uh, is uh, morally compromised. But this word philandros actually means a woman that loves her husband. Philos, philot, to love in the familial sense. This is an agape. Agape love for your husband, ladies, means that you phileo him. You love him as, as, as your husband. A lover of a husband and a lover of children. Philotechnos, lover of your own kids. We don't have to tell women to love their husbands. They don't need help with that. And they surely don't need help loving their children, except for everyone you know who ever said, my mom and I, she really wasn't, it, it was hard. Know people like that? Where mom didn't love us. Now it's a problem because it's a problem of selfishness, a problem of all kinds of things. In fact, I think the feminist movement will take you farther from this, much farther from loving your husband and loving your children. Not because you have lesser value than your husband, not because there's, there's not a problem with how men have treated women. That's not the point. The point is that the satisfaction and joy in your life comes from being a daughter of your heavenly father and in every role that you have. So how will I be the woman God wants me to be in this situation with my husband, with my children? Well, the older women need to, need to be in the word enough where they can toe the line and say, girls, young ladies, yeah, this is hard. You've got a tough situation. You've got a man with a sin nature, but you have a role to play here. So she takes him perhaps to Ephesians chapter five, shows her what a Christian wife is supposed to be like and how this is about the spirit of God working in you. This is about your spiritual life and your love for God. That's what the older women are supposed to be doing in their teaching. What is, what is woman teaching in the church today? We're going to go through Romans. I've got my special life way published materials. You can read my stuff. Do you teach men? Oh, oh, well, I mean, no. It's the, it's the feminist movement in the church. The body of Christ is supposed to be reinforced in what God made us to be by the elder working on the younger. And the elder women, if you don't do this, the girls don't have the benefit of that, of that experience, of that insight, of that advice. Arrogance one is a lady whose elder doesn't think she's responsible to do this because she's disregarding God's word. What's arrogance two? Come on, I've been, I've been really rough on you. So, so come on, fire back at me. What's arrogance two, older women? Why else does this not happen in the body of Christ? Remember, every communication takes two people. So what's arrogance two? It's in the young woman. Who says what? You can't tell me. I know better. I, I don't need your help. Not interested in what you have to say. Can't be taught. The, the great hallmark of arrogance is unteachableness, is, is a lack of being teachable. Teachability is humility, right? I can learn anything from anybody that knows better. So an older woman that's been through hardship with a husband because men are broken and sinful, even good guys are broken and sinful. All the sit downs that I have with young people trying to set them up to get married. They're all about how you are going to mitigate the problems of the sin nature that you both bring to the table. And how's that going to happen? God is going to shed his grace. You're going to depend upon him. The first relationship is you and God, and then you serve God and how you treat your spouse. That's the whole thing. That's Christian marriage. So you've been through it, ladies. You know that there's the romantic ideas. There's the idealism. There's the, all the hope chest stuff. And then there's reality. Oh, and, and young girls very often, there's this disillusionment. Oh, I got, a, I got the wrong one or buyer's regret sets in somehow. He was, I thought he was this way and he treated me this way before. And now he treats me this way after. And, and all the hardship that comes from, you know what? No matter who you marry, you're getting somebody that is selfish and broken and limited greatly and desperately needs help and often doesn't 
want the help he's being offered. And there's a Homer Simpson in all of us. And, and the Berenstain Bear is Papa Bear, the idiot of the story. There's some truth in that. And so the disillusionment sets in and, ah, oh, how can I? Uh. And so what happens? Well, without some Second Corinthians 1 comfort with the comfort you've been given, some, some mama, maybe not her mother, but somebody that's older in the church kind of assumes that older sister role. Hey, let's talk about this and brings encouragement. This is what is supposed to be happening in the church. An arrogant older woman doesn't have time for God's word to do what it says. An arrogant younger woman doesn't care what an older woman says. She doesn't understand. Now, we have to have a little bit more compassion for the younger because they've been told in this country for 80 years that the younger people have their generation and the older people, well, they're stuck in their old foginess. So the younger people need to join their culture and we have split, not different cultures through the world, but in this culture, we have different cultures generationally. And it's insane because the wisdom of the older is a treasury that's supposed to be the legacy deposited in the younger. The younger don't get it. The younger don't get it the younger get the new garbage that's being promulgated in the universities and then makes its way into the culture by way of the new satanic morality. They don't benefit from the wisdom of the elders. And, and the, all the older people are like, yeah, respect your elders and learn from us. And, and they're right, that's true. But they've been told all their lives that 80s music is for old people and we have our idiotic bubblegum pop music that we listen to now with Little Nas X and whatever else. Five years ago at camp, I think it was five years ago, speaking of that idiot, I, I'm sorry, speaking of that other human being, little Nas X, there was a song called The Old Town Roads. Do y'all know the song Old Town Roads? Some of you old fogies know about the young music. Do you understand that the chorus of that song is, can't nobody tell me nothing? The chorus of the anthem of the kids of that, that year. At camp, they're all in the bus, in the, in the van, driving to camp. They're all singing, can't nobody tell me nothing. I'm like, that is the most perfect declaration of idiocy for youth to disrespect and disregard what the adults have to say I've ever heard. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Sing it loud and proud, idiots. <laughs> now, what that phrase means, understand, pop culture, what that phrase means is that I already know. I know what I'm doing. There you go. Now, arrogance one is the older ladies don't have to obey God's word on this because they're busy or whatever. Arrogance two is the younger women will not listen to the wisdom of the elders because actually, you know, she's limited. She's petty. She's this, she's that. She doesn't understand. Well, you don't know what she understands, but what happens if we close both of those down with humility and say, I am what God made me and I need what God offers me. And right here, I need the body of Christ to function. What if a, a younger woman is humble and says, I'm availing myself of any wisdom that's offered. And an older woman is humbling herself and saying, I'm willing to share my time and my energy for God's sake in the building up of young women. What if that happens? Well, I'll tell you, in some cases, an older woman is going to say the wrong thing. A younger woman is going to go by it and is going to get confused. God will work those things out because our faith is not in the older woman. It's in Christ who provided someone to come alongside. But I'll tell you what generally is going to happen is we're going to be humble. We're going to bear along with one another. We're going to have women that build into each other's lives and cry through the heartache together in a way that they need to. And we're going to remember that uh, blood is not thicker than water. The blood of your birth and who your kids are is not thicker than the water of your regeneration where you have eternal life through the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. Lovers of husbands, lovers of children, sound-minded, sophronos, pure, homemakers, busy at home. Pure, what in the world? Y'all understand. When things are functioning properly, women who are not challenged in exactly the same way as men are, are calling men to be the moral men that they're supposed to be, that they know they're supposed to be. It's a very helpful thing women do for men in their purity. 
the, 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 the feminist impulse that says women and men are interchangeable comes with the impulse that the immorality, the immoral tendencies in men become the immoral tendencies in women. You have to be taught to be that way. That's not how you're wired. Just the way our eyes work. Just the things that, that are struggles for men that are different for women. I don't mean that women don't struggle. I mean, it's different. Homemakers. This word is oikuros agathos. Oikuros, I'm sorry. Oikuros is the one word for the worker at home or the, the house person or the busy at home. That's what we're talking about here. Somebody that is associated with the labor of being at home. The soul of the household is the woman that lives there. Oikos despot, right? From 1 Timothy. My coming aware, my becoming aware of what the Bible actually teaches about men and women was taking place in my life about the same time I learned what a first sergeant was in the company with the company commander. In the company in the army, you have the officer in charge and he is being groomed eventually to be a general. So he is associated with the unit, but he's farther removed from the men than the non-commissioned officers. And his second or third key job will be the commander of that company as an officer in the army. And he makes the decisions and he's got, he's working with the, with the higher ups and, you know, making the plans. He's doing the, the work that he needs to do. But there is with him somebody that's been in the army probably 10 years longer than him that has come up through the enlisted ranks called the first sergeant. Maybe, maybe he's been there 15 years longer. And this man is almost at the end of his career. That captain in charge of a company, he's the beginning of his career. He's got 15 more years in the army. This first sergeant, he's toward the end. He's going to retire after this company very often. And he is in charge of all those soldiers, those 100, 100 soldiers in that century, in that 100-man company. That first sergeant knows the troops. He's been with the troops. He has uh, been the drill sergeant for some of them last year at, drill sergeants, at, uh, at basic training. And he is close. He's been through the army. He knows what it is to be in the ranks. The company commander doesn't know as well. He's farther removed. And it's very interesting, the dynamics, the power dynamics between a company commander and that first sergeant. First sergeant calls him, sir, salutes. Yes, sir. No, sir. Do you understand that somebody that's been in the army for 20 years that knows all the senior non-commissioned officers and has all that power of association with the troops, do you understand that if he says to the right person, this man is not fit for company command, that that officer is gone in a, in a heartbeat. The power associated is very interesting in the dynamics of, of, the, of the army. And it's, it's, it's always been this way. You have officers and you have enlisted. And the power is almost equal between these two, but it's different power between that company commander and first sergeant. Who do you think makes sure that the troops eat? First sergeant. Who do you think makes sure that the plan is made and that we attack on time with the right equipment and, and, and everything's going tactically like we want it to? The company commander. And they share the responsibility, they share the load, and it's a beautiful relationship. And I think this is a lot how marriage works. You have different roles. Everybody needs to do his job. I mean, we have to stay up late and work hard and get up early to do our job, but everybody has to be fully on for this household to function like it needs to. And so women, you've got you've to be the professional. You have to be the one that's, look, that's working logistics. That is keeping your eye on the ball. And how long, guys, you know this. Y'all that are well, well married, all y'all, you know that things occur to her that don't occur to you. And you're like, oh, that's a good idea. We need to think of that. I'm glad you thought of that. Because if you hadn't thought of that, the entire endeavor would have failed mightily. Subordinate though to their own husbands, to place under, under in, in terms of authority, so that the word of God will not be spoken against. Let's close on this thought. Why do women need to be women in the body of Christ? Because they feel better about it. That's not why. Why do men need to be men in the body of Christ? Because we just want to be in charge and, and, and put you under our thumb. That's not why. Why do we need to do this right? So that the word of God will not be spoken against. So that the teaching of God's word will have a good witness in our conduct. The reason for all the teaching on how to live is that these things are fitting for the sound teaching of Christ.
his resurrection and his second advent, his coming back for us. In order that these women, you'll teach them older women, you'll be teachers of the good and you'll help them have sound minds so that they'll be lovers of husbands, lovers of children, sound-minded, pure, homemakers, good, subordinate to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be spoken against. If we just get past our arrogance, if we'll humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we will see this happen. It takes two people to be humble to do this, though. It takes the word of God working in both hearts for this to be available. And there are riches and joys in this that you could never imagine. Let me leave you with this thought, please. I'm describing older women, hard work. I'm, younger women, I'm describing taking some of your precious time to go spend some time with some of these older ladies. You could do this in the group. We do the ladies Bible study thing. You could do this individually, more individually, probably because of the intimate nature of the conversations that need to happen. When you, when you think about doing this type of ministry, I will bear witness to you. It seems like it's going to be a mess. It's going to be problem. It's going to be this person. I'm going to have to deal with this. I have other things going on. There are all these reasons that will flash across the horizon of your consciousness. Why not? Why cancel? Why should we cancel? Let me cancel today. We'll just push it off till next week. There are all kinds of reasons that will arise why you shouldn't do it. And all of those are, are buttressed by one thing going on inside. You don't feel like it. Listen, you don't feel like it. It's going to be a whole thing. It's, uh. Let me tell you on the other side of that, though. If you step out in faith and trust God on this one, you humble yourself and make a point. Younger women to get around some of these older women. Older women to say, I have learned a lot of things. I have been through a lot. I have a lot to share. If you'll do this. You're going to have to trust me about this, but this is my own personal witness from doing ministry that I don't feel like doing. There is joy inexpressible in the conduct of it. There is, I don't feel like it as I start, but I am so thankful to God and forevermore will be at the end. There is joy you cannot imagine on the other side of doing this work. It isn't always that way. A lot of times it hurts. Those of you, that, you campaigners, you know, there's pain because of sin. Take this last week as an example. There is joy you didn't think there was going to be because God is there and because you're submitting to him because he knows what you need and you need a lift. You need a little spiritual thermal currents in your sails to do the work he wants you to do. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word toward our conduct that we're called by you and the Apostle Paul here, the power of the Spirit of God, speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to conduct that fits our station and the word that gives us our joy, our hope, that is our focus, that mediates a relationship to you that we now have. Father, we're called to live a certain way. The world has so many distractions, so many other ways of talking about this that take us off the mark. Let us burn away all that distraction and our laser focus on you, on your son. Let us consider what you said here and how we can worship you in obedience, conducting our lives in the power of your spirit this way. Father, let us live fitting for sound teaching. I pray it in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen.